And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. to another episode of wings for breakfast our twice weekly red wings podcast here on the athletic i'm max boltman with me as always is prashant Iyer. how you doing prashant well uh i think i finally woke up from my nap after the first period of that red wing stars game the other night so um i think things are starting to look up you didn't go right back to sleep but once once you did wake up no i mean you know i think that i'll, that'll probably have to wait for the next uh, the next period here you know, if, especially if it goes the way that that first period did against Dallas. <laughs> yeah, what was it like ten shots on goal in the period? Yeah, including uh, one shot on goal through the first eleven <laughs> minutes. I don't know how many times I've seen that happen, including uh, the Red Wings not having a single shot attempt in the first ten minutes of a hockey. Game. You know what's funny is that's exactly how they want to play. Like this was them executing defensively, at least to perfection. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was exactly what you want to see if you're a Red Wings fan. Was no, trust me, I heard from a, a lot of them. It wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> it was not what they wanted to see. I mean, no one wants to watch it. Let's just be real. That's not pretty to watch whatsoever. However, that's the only way if at the end of the day you are interested in seeing W's go up in the Red Wing in the win column for this team, the only way you're going to see it is games like that. Completely mucking it up through the neutral zone, suffocating pressure in zone, and not really any interest in playing offense. I don't think it's a disinterest in playing offense, but there was will certainly be no sacrifices made in the interest of generating it. Like that's what comes through. Is you're you're not gonna uh, necessarily be looking to to make that home run play because it's got some risk attached to it, and that could put your D in a bad spot. And uh, sometimes those home run plays are when you score, and so without them. Uh, you basically do have to manufacture the way they did on their first goal, which was uh, a dump and chase executed to perfection. Uh, Giovanni Smith and on the forecheck, Tara Hirose getting down behind the goal line to set up Nemestikov. But uh, that's the only offense they got. I mean, I, I thought Manta had a couple of nice passes that, that could have resulted in goals toward the net um, that did not. But it was not a game heavy on chances. This was... Uh, Final score is 2-1. It looked like it. Yeah, I mean, that's ex- that's exactly it. I think if you watch the Red Wings and you watch their system, um, you know, for those who uh, maybe didn't play at a high level or, or kind of more peripherally watching the team, there's a couple things to pay attention to, um, to Max's point about, you know, this team's really not going to take chances. So when you watch them on their forecheck, you're going to see one guy go in, um, and that one guy is going to go in after the puck on the boards and be aggressive there. You'll see a second guy usually on the opposite side of the ice, you know, making himself available for that puck to come around and potentially closing an outlet. 
But really the key to what makes a really aggressive forecheck is what happens with the third forward and what happens with the two defensemen. Um, And so when you watch Detroit, that third forward is not aggressively pressuring either side of the puck. That third forward is not coming in and closing down the quick short outlet. That third forward tends to sit higher in the neutral or in the defensive zone, or I should say offensive zone, and is kind of almost in position to transition back to play defense. Uh, for those that watched the Red Wings in the 90s, it's almost reminiscent of a left wing lock in a sense, where you know that third forward is actually serving as a third defenseman on in, in transition backwards. And and you know, that really plays out when you watch this team because. You see that they don't win a lot of forechecking battles, but they're generally well positioned to muck up the neutral zone. And that's because they've got more bodies there. And so as you're paying attention to it, you know, it's maybe I'm kind of being a little facetious here by saying they're not interested in playing offense. You know, Max, I think you said it better. They're not interested in taking chances to play offense. They would much rather, you know, wait for a lucky bounce like a Taro Hirose pass that ricochets off of Haskin and skate. (laughs) that goes right to Vladislav Nemestnikov, and all of a sudden you've got a goal. They would rather have that than try to force something at the expense of having a uh, not having three guys back to play defense. It, it, the goal is honestly a perfect example because what you're talking about with that F3, that third forward, is I agree that they stay really high until it's clear that the Red Wings have won possession, and then they'll creep down and look for a chance. And that was what Nemesnikov, what was happening. When the Red Wings won possession down there, Tarharos is able to put something toward the front of the net, and by that point, Nemesnikov is down low ready for his chance. He did not get all of it, but it, that's kind of the idea, is, is you, you, you get your chances from around that net, and they don't have to be perfect. You just get, an, you know, you hope to get enough of them, or you hope to make the most of them at least. Um, that a couple go in. And I, I do think they had more chances than just that one goal, but it was not by a ton. And I think uh, I think they're comfortable playing this kind of game. I think a, a 1-1 game late is really their sweet spot because at that point you can get one late if you get the right power play uh, you know, timing. And, and certainly that requires a, a power play that's clicking on uh, more cylinders than, than they are right now. Uh, or you go into overtime and, and you try to win it like they did against Columbus, where again, you're, you're looking for the right bounce in front of the net. This is not fun hockey to watch. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say that, that, that you should be enjoying the, the experience of watching this team. But I think Prashant said it very well, which is if they want to have a chance to win games and, and be in games, this is the path there. And I have a really hard time disputing that. Now, that doesn't mean I particularly enjoy watching it. I'd much rather watch uh, Colorado and St. Louis. And, and and these are good teams, too. And they're able to do it. And, you know, I, I think St. Louis is a pretty strong defensive team, but um, also able to be really hard on the forecheck and, and score goals in different kinds of ways. They are a lot more talented, though. And I think it makes a little more sense for them to play the way they do. Um, and I, again, I don't think it's massive, massive differences. Like when you talk about the, the values here, I think Colorado wants to be heavy as well. I think Colorado wants to be a team that, that does a lot of their dirty work in deep, right? Quote, hashtag pucks in deep. These are things that I, I, I think uh, they can get a bad rap and not totally for the wrong, for, for the, or not totally, you know, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's not totally undeserved. Um, but it's more about when you do them, you, you know, pucks in deep and, and getting getting on in on a heavy forecheck and 
quote unquote dumping and chasing, you know, flipping the puck off the boards, all these things, um, not inherently bad, but bad if they if you do them when you have the chance to to make a real efficient play that's not just a dump in. Bad if you're doing it all the time. Bad if you're passing up good looks to do them because it's just all you've all you've got left. You know, it's it's the the phrase that Jeff Blaschel uses all the time is managing risk, and I know that uh, his endorsement isn't the one that that is going to convince people right about now, but I think it's that's about how most coaches view this uh, is 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 hockey as a game that's a lot about risk. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the perfect way to put it, and I think if you're looking at ninety nine percent of hockey coaches, they're risk averse. No one wants to do it. Uh, no one wants to take chances. I mean. We're just now starting to see a bigger push happen in the NFL where teams are being more aggressive on fourth down. And I think that's a great parallel to hockey in the sense of teams are unwilling to be more aggressive, you know, on their power plays, go five forwards. Teams are unwilling to be more aggressive on their forecheck, get that third person in deep, be more aggressive with the pinches, allow the players to maybe force some more plays and, and kind of play to their creative instincts a little bit more. No, hockey is is very much a risk-averse sport, you know, from a coaching standpoint. I think if you're placing it on the spectrum, it's far behind, uh, you know, where the NFL is. And the NFL is only just starting to pick up, you know, some of the nuances of, hey, we should go for it here on fourth down, or, you know, this is actually a better scenario to to punt or, or, or to kick the field goal, depending on the situation. I don't think hockey coaching has made it to that extent. And, and you're exactly right. This is exactly what the Red Wings want to see. You come away and you look at the stats for the game. Neither team, neither team managed to record more than 1.25 expected goals at five on five. That's a perfect game for Detroit, right? They held the stars to under one, 1.25 and they and the Wings themselves were under 1.25. That's the fifth game where the Wings have been under 1.25. And that's the fourth time they've held their opponent under 1.25. That's what they want to do, and and they're actually having a little bit more success at it this year. And then again, you know, you you look at the total stats, and their five on five expected goals for percentage, it's fifty two percent. So they're they're actually winning the quality battle simply by smothering the other team. Um, it is absolutely not pretty to watch. It reminds me of Guy Boucher's hockey, <laughs> you know, teams in, in, down in Tampa, um, you know, and then later in Ottawa. It's not fun to watch, but it kind of works still. And so I don't think you're going to see anything different at this point. If this was a Red Wings team that we thought had playoff hopes, I would question some of this to a higher degree because I still think you have to score goals to really consistently win. But what we've talked about dating back to this preseason is that this Red Wings season, more than anything else, is about them getting back to competitiveness uh, and just being in all these games, a better development environment for their young players, although they don't have any, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, and 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 just in terms of, of reestablishing that as this as, a, as an organization that's not going to go out and, and lose every night and there's not get blown out um, to the degree that they can avoid it. Um, those, I think, are, are higher priority situations for this iteration of this Red Wings team than worrying about can you make a playoff run this way because you cannot you cannot make a playoff run this way you probably can't even make the playoffs um with with this little offensive output but what the red wings have to reckon with is 
they are probably not getting a ton more offense, maybe a little more than they've gotten the last couple games uh, at even strength, but probably not a ton more coming either way. And if the goal is getting back to competitiveness, the thing you can control probably more than anything else is what you're giving up. And if you can make that trade off and, uh, and, and, and trade some of those home run swings for things that you feel more, more comfortable, uh, that that you're going to be set up to, to stay in structure and, um, and, and be in a position to recover, uh, or, or at least not try to cheat for offense, um, is the word that coaches will use a lot. Then I think this is a fair system and that doesn't mean I enjoy watching it. And I do think the offense is a major problem, but I think the context of, of where the Red Wings are as a team, as a franchise, what we kind of all agreed were the, um, goals for them this season, I think this system is kind of a match for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree because, and, and you know, I think it's not pleasant for fans to watch. It's not pleasant for any of us to watch. Are, right, and, and I think a lot of people are frustrated watching. But, you know, if you're talking about a coach who's going to play to his team's strengths and play to what he has available to work with, well, let's take stock. If you took the Red Wings forward group and stacked them up talent-wise against the other 30 teams in the NHL, where does this team rank from an offensive standpoint? It's probably bottom three. You know, maybe Ottawa is the only team worse than them. I don't know if there's another team that's worse than them uh, besides Ottawa. I mean, you could certainly argue, you know, the Kings, but they still have, you know, guys like Kopitar and, they, you know, potentially Byfield comes up this year and, They've got guys that are moving in the right direction with Velarde and and such. Honestly, so, this Dallas you know, team Kings, banged up as they are is probably in that category right now. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, Dallas having half their guys out, maybe they're in that same scenario. But you're talking about arguably a bottom three team here with with potentially uh, the Kings and Senators maybe being the only two teams worse. So you can't have an open system where you can have a run-and-gun style of game because you are going to lose that from a variant standpoint You know, more often than not. You don't have the talent to compete. What Detroit can do, though, is try to smother the other team's talent by playing this suffocating style. And, you know, Max, I'll disagree with you on one certain extent. Yes, Detroit certainly needs more offensive output, but this kind of style is a nightmare to play in the playoffs. This is why Columbus beat Tampa. That's fair. It's this kind of, in a seven-game series, if I can absolutely smother everything for both teams and the bounces go my way, I'm going to win. And this is how the Ducks did it in 2003 when they beat the Red Wings in the first round. That was a four-game sweep by Anaheim. They had J.S. Jaguar in net, and they just said, we're going to smother everything. And, and lo and behold, that was a Mike Babcock coach team, and then Mike Babcock brings that system to Detroit. Detroit plays that, but they had the offensive talent that they could open it up a little bit more, so it was more enjoyable to watch. Although, note that all those Red Wings teams were towards the bottom of the league in actual pace of play when you're looking at total events happening. So this has kind of been the the, the go-to for the Red Wings for a really long time, and it's really the only way they're going to stay competitive in these games because if you open it up, if you start showing more aggression, you simply do not have the offensive talent to keep up. And I think that's the frustrating part to recognize. So is the biggest difference then for, because you would agree, right? Like even if they're, let, let's say they uh, were, the record was such that they were going to be the four seed in this division. 
Um, you would agree they don't have enough scoring to compete, though, in the playoffs. Like, you, you still probably can't yeah, win with one goal. As of the, yeah. yeah, right now where they're at, they're not scoring enough. You have to get yourself somewhere to around, uh, you know, where at least you can be a little bit more dangerous at five on five. I think they're not there yet. And that's honestly the biggest difference between this team sneaking in as an eight seed and potentially, you know, frustrating people um, versus them being where they're at right now. I mean, I'd say if you want to do, if you wanted to be a little more dangerous, the Wings would probably have to score about, you know, half a goal, if not a full goal more, you know, per game to really be dangerous. Uh, so is the best way to just not is, is the only real if, if you're going to play this because I I think you make a very good point about this being a, a kind of tried and true playoff style is the big difference then just that when you have a Datsuk a Zetterberg a Matt Barzell whoever it may be when you have a guy like that their efficiency level on the few chances they do get is just that much higher that it can translate to averaging three goals, for example, instead of 1.8 or whatever? I I do believe that was Babcock's philosophy to a certain extent. I have no confirmation on that, but, you know, my my always assessment of his Red Wings teams was, okay, in this situation, I have the best talent and I have the best defensive talent. If I make this a lower event game, I am going to win this more often than not. Um, because my team is much better at stopping your chances. And I like the odds of my guys scoring on your guys. Uh, I don't know for sure. Normally you would think that a higher pace system would be the better way to go because you'd let your offensive talent win out. But I think by also having Nick Lidstrom, who could chew up half the game, Brian Rafalski, who could chew up a lot of the game, plus having the two-way capacity of Datsuk and Zetterberg, uh, I, I think he was a little more confident in a low event style. And, you know, if you look at what he did with the Leafs, as soon as he got to Toronto, he actually flipped it. Now he was the highest pace team because he didn't necessarily have the defensive talent, but he had Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, and, you know, so on and so forth and was able to, to turn it up. And so, you know, now you kind of look back at where the wings are right now. They have none of the offensive talent and none of the defensive talent to be very, very competitive. And so I think you do go to a lower event system that keeps shots to the outside. Um, and, and you try and force teams to either take those lower percentage shots like the Hurricanes did uh, in the two-game series, or you force teams like Dallas to try and get creative to get to the net, and they just simply can't do that. So it, it really is a system that Detroit needs to do in order to win, but they do need to be scoring about a goal more per game uh, at five-on-five five to really be a dangerous team. So the one thing that, that stands out to me as I try to kind of square, because I think you're right. I, I think you're, you make all the right points here about the, the value of it and the utility of it, um, especially when you have the right kind of roster, which I think we can agree the Red Wings are. This is the best system they can do with this roster to keep them competitive. They still don't have the best possible roster to make the most of this system. But what what I find interesting is that some of the players who ought to be the best at something like this are your real veteran guys, your Valtteri Filippolas and your Franz Nielsens. And you can see they, they've, they've gotten some good ice time. I've actually thought, you know, Filippola has maybe gotten more heat than um, I would have expected in the first handful of games this season. Um, but nonetheless, I, you know, last night, their line between them, Glenn Denning, Filippola and Nielsen, not a single one of those forwards had a shot on goal and they played like 15 minutes. And I didn't think Philpola was good last night, and he got a ton of minutes. 
And so I, I wonder, like, what is the difference there? Because in theory, those are your smart, savvy veterans. They're mature. They're patient. They're, they're able to do these things, on, on, like you're talking about with the F3, being patient, staying high. Why doesn't that translate to something from them? Is it just that they're more willing to, to um, give up, you know, shots to, to their defensemen at the point, which, like you said, are low, low percentage shots, but maybe you give yourself a, a chance at a rebound? Because when I see it, I, I think these are the guys who should be, I mean, Lark and Manta Bertuzzi should be the best at it. They're the best players, and they are by now mature enough and veteran enough to do it. But after that, like I would expect to see those guys at least kind of the maybe have some kind of comparative advantage because of their experience in that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the intuition is there, and I think that's why you see them played as much as they were played. I mean, they were, you know, one of the most utilized lines against the stars in that first game, despite the fact that at five on five. They had a course of four percentage of fifteen percent. That was I yeah. mean, the 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 you know the Mantha Nemestnikov Ryan line conversely was at eighty one percent, and the Larkin Bertuzzi Brome lines at fifty percent. So it's like, and then these guys were there at fifteen percent. For me, when I watch those guys, I think there's two things that stand out. They are less aggressive on the forecheck in terms of trying to retrieve the puck back, and then they are more willing to give up the perimeter shots. So that Corsi number, is, to me, is always going to look worse for those guys. And then what I think ends up happening is when you give up those perimeter shots, now you get yourselves in scramble situations. Who's going to be the first one to that loose puck? Who's going to win that battle to get it out? And I think that line combo, the Glendening, the Philpolo, the Nielsen line, I think they are more than happy to throw that puck out of the ice if they're the first one, you know, up the ice if they're the first one to it. And they're not as aggressive about trying to retrieve it back in the offensive zone. I think they're more interested in strictly playing defense. Um, so they may not give up a lot of goals against. They may not give up a lot of high quality chances against. You know, for as what I just said, I said they had a Corsi four percentage of you know fifteen percent. They gave up 0.17 expected goals for, which was almost half of what Hiroshi, Rasmussen, and Smith gave yeah. up. And they're and, and they played half as many. But they games. had zero, flat out zero, absolute zero right. expected goals for. Right, they did absolutely nothing for offense, <laughs> but they didn't give anything up for defense, and that is music to Jeff Blash. Okay, but my one my counterpoint opinion. to that though is I, I don't know I don't know that I have data I don't have data for this. Maybe Corey Snyder has something that you could look into on this for, for the exits. My number one thing about Nielsen's game so far is exiting the D zone. I think that's where. So many of the the negative notices I've had on him are where, where you notice him when you go, uh-oh, Nielsen. It's exiting the D zone. One of them led to a goal against Chicago, and that was on the penalty kill. I get it's hard to get the puck out of the zone on the PK, but I've, I have seen him struggle to, to transport the puck out of the D zone. And I know that's not technically defending, but it falls in the category of defense for me. Just about everything in the defensive zone falls in the category of defense for me. And that's an area that, at least to my eye, and I can't confirm it because my eye test is no longer analytics, as we've learned so far this season, <laughs> is that has been a shortcoming for him, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone on that line is capable of skating the puck out well. That's why they just shoot it down the right. ice. And so that's what it is. It's, it's now, in their shift, you shoot it down the ice and then you go change. And, and, or you, cause you know, how many times are you really going to get a clear and then stay on the ice given these 30 to 40 second shifts? That's to me, that's what I think is happening. They are defending, they make the puck retrieval, they shoot it out down the ice. They're not carrying it out. So I bet if I looked at Corey's data, 
um, which I have admittedly not yet this season because I don't know if he's tracked any Wings games yet. Um, I would suspect that they are not high from a controlled exit percentage, um, meaning maintaining control of the puck as they exit the zone. I think that line is more than willing to throw the puck down the ice and just continue to play defense. And I think that's why they continue to get deployed um, is from this mindset of, well, they're not going to go, they're not going to give that much up from a quality perspective. I just have a hard time squaring it, like with like Bobby Ryan. What did Ryan play last night? Ah, uh, he got 18 minutes. Okay. I mean, that's that's more than any of those guys, except, I mean, he's right about on par with Philpola. But even like, you know, you mentioned that line generated the most expected goals for, for the Red Wings, and it also only gave up like 0.02 against. And so... But you know, if he's if they're playing eighteen minutes, I think it's gonna it'd be really hard to play Bobby Ryan more than eighteen minutes at, at this stage of his career. So maybe that's that. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's tough. It's frustrating to watch. I am not even trying to defend it to the sense that I'm not trying to justify it. You're explaining, but it. yeah, I'm explaining it. I don't like it. I hate it. <laughs> I hate watching it. I almost fell asleep twice, but it got the Red Wings to overtime. And it kept the stars, you know, at just over one expected goal at five on five. And it shut down a power play. And by shut down, I mean the stars just couldn't convert on their, you know, they only converted one out of their four chances. But, you know, that power play had scored eight times uh, in the first two games. So, you know, I, I, it works for what Jeff Blashill has as much as I hate to watch it. It's kind of like you're trying to uh, cut cut carbs out, and it's like it, it it sucks, and there's there's no fun in not eating pizza or you know bread or pasta or whatever. But if you want to lose weight, it works. Like it, it's it's not the fun way, and you know it, it's it's certainly not the way that's going to win you many uh, you know social whatever. You're not going to be in, in in the most fun situations for however long you're doing it. But it is effective for that goal, and if that goal is really important to you. It's kind of the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that it, it is what it is. All right. Uh, anything else off the Dallas game that, that really stood out to you? I think we've kind of mostly covered the nuts and bolts of it there, but anything else stand out that, that you want to spend some time on? I mean, you know, nothing significant. Again, you know, the Red Wings power play yes. fails to, to convert. I think at some point there needs to be a lengthy conversation about what needs to change about the power play. You know, I think we briefly touched on this last time that, Red Wings were dead last in every meaningful metric uh, from power play effectiveness last season. And some for some reason, they thought, let's run it back. And it's going the exact same way. Uh, you know, I think the key here is when you play that system like Blasio plays, you are hoping for those bounces and breaks to go your way. Well, it did. The Wings had a power play with four minutes to go in the third period and couldn't convert, that would have been the difference in the game and you're potentially walking out of there with two points. So there, there's got to be something, you know, to sort out here because the Wings are now, I think, three for 20 on the season. Uh, and, and and that's got to get a lot better really, really quickly. Jeff Blaschel mentioned today that they want to find a way to get uh, Bobby Ryan more involved there. And I think that does mean moving towards something that goes a little more low to high than just high to low. Because I think that the point that he made, I'd have to go back and listen to it to be sure. So nobody quote me on this, but you could probably all find it too. I think these are all on YouTube. But he made a, he made a comment about the high to low one timer not actually being all that high percentage of a shot, and that means the one timer that comes from that middle defenseman at the very top uh, over to Anthony Mantha, over to Dylan Larkin, or 
frankly, from Anthony Manta to Philip Ronick from the top. None of those are all that high percentage shots. They have to get through a ton of traffic. Um, you know, maybe maybe someone like Rasmussen can feast a little bit in that environment on a rebound. He almost did have a goal last night um, right in front of the net. But I think that low to high, it would not surprise me at all if that's something you see them at least look to do a little more. Now, it relies on a bunch of other things to happen. Like one thing about that that style of power play is it's really hard to make that your go-to if you can't enter the zone cleanly and they struggle to do that and it's exacerbated when they don't win the opening face-off but uh i think if, if you see them get set here in the next couple of games i wonder if they try to run this thing a little more through bobby ryan than we've seen to this point so far yeah i think something has to change and and you know to blasho's point he's absolutely right that high to you know low one timer, uh, if you're when you were getting that kind of puck movement and the value of a one timer, what you were hoping to see is you're hoping to move either the defense with your pass or you're hoping to be able to catch the goaltender moving. So number one, the high to low uh, one timer, particularly when it comes from that middle defenseman, doesn't really move a wedge penalty. Yes, because it's designed to defend that. And then the second thing is the min- the movement for a goaltender is minimal. So the goaltender is set before they hit the butterfly. And that's the key to the butterfly goaltending style is to be able to be set before the shot is taken. And so it's very easy to defend that and you're not going to get anywhere with that. And so really the wings have to find a way to get away from, you know, the high point shot. They have to find a way to get away, you know, to, to get those one timers from the dots set up better. I think using Bobby Ryan, who's the, you know, could be the net front presence on the power play, getting him to step out from the, in front of the net to the side of the net and then having options available. What that would require, though, is one thing the wings have not done very well, and that's taking the ice that's given to them. And what I mean by that is when the defense sags off those defenders those are the, the Red Wings power play guys. They need to be able to step in and take that ice as opposed to staying in their positions kind of high in the zone. That's going to allow the, the defense to kind of further and further collapse. And it's going to open up a lot more passing lanes from dangerous angles. And so I think there's a lot of things that need to happen. Playing through Bobby Ryan would be a great start because he seems to have a good knack for what's going on. But they have to find a way to get into the slot they have to find a way to get the puck crossing the slot in order to actually generate anything of substance. I forget what team it was. It might have been Buffalo or someone else, but there was a team I saw score a couple different goals going goal line to bumper. And I think you're exactly right that that slot is so underutilized by the Red Wings. And I don't know if it's because they just don't think they can squeeze a pass in there or what, but if you're able to to just get a look from there, maybe from behind the net to the slot. I mean, that's a situation where it's going from a situation where the goalie can barely see the puck, if at all, to has to react in time, track the puck, and then figure out where the shooter's going with it. That seems like a look that we have not seen enough of from the Red Wings. And I know it's way easier for me to say from where I sit right here or whether it's from above in the press box. I know there's a lot more traffic than that on the ice. It's something I'd like to see them make a more concerted effort to do. Yeah, I mean, it's something that they used to do. In fact, uh, you know, one of the earliest articles I think I ever wrote was examining how well the Wings used to use the slot when they had Gustav Nyquist Mm. playing that bumper position. 
Um, he was extraordinary at moving in and out of the slot, retrieving pucks, and creating passing lanes for not only tips. Um, so, you know, a lot of people just think about the slot being a, sl- a one-timer. Um, the wings actually used to really effectively use it for high deflections. And so it would be the point guy would actually be taking the shot, but they'd be shooting for the stick of the slot player uh, for those deflections. In fact, you can go back and find Nick Lidstrom's 1,000th career point comes on exactly one of those plays yeah. where the wings want to face off. Nick Lidstrom shoots the puck. Zetterberg's got a stick right there at the top of the faceoff dot to flex that puck right under the bar. I mean, these, these are plays that the wings are accustomed to doing and have done, you know, in the past. And they have to find a way to bring that back because that's when that power play was operating at 25%. And now you're sitting with a power play that's, you know, 10% or 15%. And that's just not going to work when you're playing this very low event style at five on five. You know who might be pretty good in that spot? Anthony Mantha. Who? I think Anthony Mantha would be great in that spot with his reach. I know that he's been kind of the hallmark of of that half wall spot there. But I wonder if at some point it's worth a look with Zadina on the half wall, who I think is much more of a um, facilitator naturally. I think Mantha's a good playmaker, but I think Zadina's a little more of a natural power play facilitator there. I wonder how that would look if, if your middle row there on the power play was Larkin, Mantha, Zadina in order rather than Larkin, Bertuzzi, Mantha. I think it would be great because I think Mantha's reach would do wonders for poking pucks back to the, the top of the power play. Um, you know, when you have those loose pucks, I think he's very good at deflecting the puck. I think uh, he doesn't get enough credit for that, but he's got great hands. Uh, I think he would be a good person to set that up. And then that would, I think putting him in the bumper would do one thing for him that we haven't really seen this season. It's force him into a shoot first mentality. Uh, I think a lot of the season we've seen Mantha being in situations where normally he should shoot the puck. Normally he would shoot the puck, but he's making passes. When you're in that bumper slot, you don't really have time to to look and think about passes. Um, it's it's all quick movement, and it's almost like a little bit of a sniper zone if you're working that low to high uh, power play shot. So I think that might do some wonders for his confidence if you're getting him shooting the puck and scoring a couple goals from there. So you know that'd be one potential change to try and do is to get him in the slot. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we were going to talk about overtime, but I don't know how much we're going to really have to say on it. Mantha had a, probably the Red Wings' best look on one of his power moves that he didn't really get a great chance to get to get off. And then um, coming back from from that similar sequence, uh, John Klingberg just uh, unleashed a, a fearsome move that left Mantha kind of swinging his stick trying to break up uh, unsuccessfully. Klingberg held on to it, and then as as he turned and uh, he found a, I forget who it was, Dickinson, maybe Jason Dickinson in the slot, yeah. goes bar down on, I don't know if it was bar down, top shelf at, at minimum on Grice, and that's the game. Not the way Mantha would have wanted to end it, um, but I thought he was better at least last night. Yeah, I thought he was a lot better, and I think you know people are going to say, they're going to look at that final play where he loses Dickinson and coverage a little bit on the switch, and and they're going to get on him for that. I think ultimately he played a lot better. He generated a lot of dangerous passes uh, that just didn't amount to a whole lot. Uh, but I think if he continues to play that way, uh, the puck's going to end up in the back of the net. Yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Well, then I want to shift over to Philip Hironik, who is a guy that um, obviously has been the Red Wings number one defenseman for the last year plus now. Um, this goes back to a little bit of the power play because I, I think some of the shots that have been from from far out um, have been from Hironik, especially when he's on the first unit right up top on that kind of middle role. The Red Wings like him better in the flank, uh, on the flank, which is where they've had him when he's on the second unit. But um, he's he's done he's done some of both. He's done some where he's just up top. I, I'm curious. Number one, how do you think the Red Wings should be using Philip Hironik uh, in in that sense? And secondarily, just an overall assessment, kind of a spotlight on on Philip Hironik today, because uh, you had a tweet last night talking about Philip Hironik, and it didn't sound like you were too hot on on how he's been so far this season. Yeah. So I think let's start with the the power play piece of things. I think. You know, number one, Philip Peronik has a shoot first mentality. And so when that puck is coming to him and he's at the top of the power play uh, umbrella, he's shooting the puck. I mean, the guy has taken 30% of the power play shots when he's on the ice. I do not want 30% of the shots coming, you know, from 60 feet out. Uh, you're not going to have a successful power play whatsoever if that's what you're what you're doing. So you've got to find a way to to put him in better shooting positions. Um, and so, you know, one of the things the Wings used to do really, really well with Nick Lidstrom, Matthew Schneider, and, you know, Brian Rafalski was they would get switches going at the top and they would get these guys in the right, you know, on their off wing, uh, you know, so Philip Ronick would maybe rotate down to the left half boards and get himself in a shooting position on his off wing to take a one-timer from a higher percentage location. Uh, you know, you got to find a way to get them into lanes to, to shoot the puck better. But if I had like a perfect scenario, I wouldn't have him on the power play at all. I'd actually run five forwards. I don't think he is talented enough or offensively inclined enough to make a huge difference on the power play such that I need him. In fact, if I'm Detroit, the one time I would be aggressive if you're going to play this low event style is on the power play. Throw five forwards out there, you know, roll a unit with Zadina, Mantha, Larkin, Ryan, and Bertuzzi. And now all of a sudden, watch the creativity happen. You can get a little bit more puck rotation and movement, but I'd take him off entirely. And, and potentially that would also save him some minutes because I think you and I talked about this last year a lot that his minutes, the the longer he stayed around that 25-minute mark, you started to see his play decline more and more and more. And sure enough, again this season, he's just over 24 minutes a night. He's in the top 20 amongst defensemen in the league. Uh, I don't know that he's going to be able to handle that workload and potentially sparing him some of those special teams minutes may be able to cut him down there more. 
but yeah, you know, I, I kind of sent out a, a semi-inflammatory tweet yesterday just to see what would happen, um, as I'd like to do on occasion, um, kind of questioning, you know, how good is Philip Peronic at this point in time? And I think you have to take a, a look at the numbers so far. So far, he's got four assists, all of them secondary, has no primary points on the season. Um, you know, his five and five expected goals for is exactly where it was last year. He's at 42.4% this season, which is, you know, quite bad. Uh, he's, uh, and, and last season he was at 41.8. So you haven't really made much of a difference despite the team, you know, being a couple percentage points better and him having a little bit more talent in front of him. Granted, you were missing a couple guys for uh, the last couple games here. Um, but you know, that's not looking any better. The pairing of, him and Nemeth is 82nd amongst defensemen that have played uh, at least 30 minutes together in five on five expected goals for percentage. And so, you know, I think as you and I have talked about this with right handed defensemen and how well the Red Wings are solidified there. And do you really need another right shot defenseman with Moritz Sider and, and you know, Tuo Misto and, and Philip Ronin? I'm not super confident about Philip Ronin being better than a four or five at this point. So I'm still a heroic believer. So this is a good, I think this is a good, uh, every once in a while we get one of these where we disagree pretty, pretty clearly on the show. And I think, I think it makes for good radio. Um, I, I agree that he's not off to the start. I expected considering he was one of the few guys who had the runway of playing in Europe. Um, I think the primary points thing, give it time. I think part of that is just because of how bad the Red Wings offense overall has been. And there's just less points to go around that way. But the counterpoint to that would be if, if, if all the ones so far uh, are secondary points, you can kind of argue he's already picked up a few of those accidental points on the way too. Although I would say, especially the power play ones, he is helping clearly there to facilitate. I do think uh, maybe a little too quick of a um, shoot, maybe too quick of a like shoot first mentality there up up top. And I, I think that's worth amending, but I still look at Philip Hironik and I see a guy who I think is smart. I think he shoots the puck well. Um, and I think that when he's not being asked to play such a two-way stalwart number one role, that will really come out. Like if he's playing alongside a guy who is like a, almost a better version of an, of a Nemeth, uh, in that top four where he can take some more of those chances. I think he's got the skill set to really sneak down and unleash what is a weapon of a one-timer. And I think he can make smart plays. He does every once in a while pull up from half ice and shoot it as he did last night. But I've also seen him score on that play in the AHL, granted. So I'm a heroic believer. I think he's going to be a part of the top four of this team. It might be as a number four, but I could also see him being, you know, l- let's say, for example, the Red Wings get Owen Power. And I know you're not huge on Owen Power right now either, but it's kind of the style of player that I'm referring to where um, now you got two pretty good two-way defensemen, but Power can maybe be more the, um, on a given shift, can maybe stay home a little more, be a little more insurance and let Hronik take some of these chances that we talked about earlier on, the Red Wings really not being able to take at all right now. That's where I see, you know, Power be the better player on that pair, but Hironik might be the more offensive player on that pair. Do you see what I mean? Like, that's kind of how I envision him in a Red Wings top four of the future is by taking maybe more chances than he can afford to take right now. Um, and that's mostly, I think, due to the overall lineup around him. Does that make any sense? I-, I could buy that if his skating was where I thought it would be. 
It's fair. You know, when when you watched him yesterday, and a couple of people pointed this out to me too, so maybe I'm, I'm not entirely crazy. He looks slow. You know, he he was actually losing puck battles by not being the first one back on pucks that were chipped in behind him. In fact, it almost looked like at one point, if you go back and roll the tape on on Dallas against Philip Peronik last night, they were almost choosing to pick on him with the chip and chase as opposed to Patrick Nemeth, which I thought would never happen. They were dumping it in on Philip Peronik's side and making him be the one to turn and go get it. And he was losing the foot race. And so, you know, that's that's something that I've kind of picked up on as being somewhat consistent this season. And I think that's kind of a bad sign right now. Um, you know, if you, we think of him as being this offensively inclined player, he was incredible offensive player in juniors, uh, you know, great scorer, great power play quarterback. His first season in the NHL was also, you know, pretty good. But then the last, you know, kind of since the middle of last year and and really continued this season, I have not seen anything that stands out to me as a guy who is going to be a, a stalwart, you know, number four. Um, you know, and I think back to the 07-08 team with, uh, you know, the Red Wings' last cup winning team. And they had Brad Stewart, who was on that second pairing, and he was Nicholas Cronwell's partner. And it's almost exactly what you're describing, Max, where Stewart was the steady veteran, you know, almost the better version of Patrick Nemeth. And it allowed Nicholas Cronwell to go and flourish. And in fact, if you go back and look at the stats on, on Cronwell that season, he was one of the best defensemen in the NHL playing from that three spot. I don't see any world where that's Philip Ronick with a better D partner or even close to that. Um, and that's what's steering me more towards he's he's the five or he's he's maybe the four. He's the guy that's holding down the four while someone else is is jumping up and joining the rush because, you know, I haven't seen the offensive instincts that I was hoping to see. And even, you know, I think that shows up best on the power play. And now I'm not seeing the foot speed defensively either. I think I'm, I'm starting to have some significant concerns that Phillips Ronick's just played a lot of hockey recently and I think is really weighing on him. Well, I disagree about the instincts. I think he's a smart player, and I think his his hockey sense is maybe his best attribute. Well, his one-timers is his best attribute, but after that. um, As for the foot speed, the one thing I'll say about it is it's possible that there's like a, you know, mileage tread thing going into effect here, and it's just hard to play at top speed for 25 minutes. And, you know, I I heard Mickey Redmond make a comment about this on the the broadcast one of these recent nights, or maybe it was Eddie Olchek. Somebody made a comment about, you know, playing a lot of minutes for his smaller size. Um, I think that could be a factor. I'll also say... This guy's 23. If, if he looks like he's lost a little bit of a step, I don't think that's a permanent thing that you need to worry about. It's never coming back. Now, I wouldn't say that skating has ever been the element of Hironik's game. Like That'd be more true of someone like Dennis Chalowski. Um, and I, I think Hironik is going to be a guy who's going to kind of um, will his way to a lot of what he does. And I, I think the offense will stay there. I expect him to keep producing at about a half point per game. And the question will become... Does that end up as empty offense, right? In in this way of like, a, you might think of like a Rasmus Ristolainen kind of way where it's like 40 points, but no one's saying, you know, no one's trying to 
you know, beat the door down to get Rasmus Ristolainen out of Buffalo, even though it certainly doesn't seem like that that's been an impossibility if someone wanted to for the last couple of years. So that's your fear, I think, is Ristolainen is what I'm picking up between the lines is that it, it can be kind of empty points um, without really being the offense. But I think Hronik is a smart enough player that this is going to this is going to go okay for him, even if right now he's he's being asked to manage a workload that I don't think is in line um, with, with how to maximize him. And I think you'll see the Red Wings try to maximize a lot of their players better right now. But I don't know. I, I have a really hard time looking at Her- what Heronic has done so far in the NHL. And I agree that the numbers don't back this up. He's, he's just one of the rare guys that I'm kind of willing to overlook it with. Maybe it's kind of bad analytical discipline on my part. Um to just say this is one where I'm going to give you know a, a little more benefit of the doubt to a guy who is playing with a, a huge workload, not the best quality of teammate, high, high, high quality of competition, high, high, high leverage minutes, high duress minutes, and trust what I think what I think are some really good offensive abilities um, and and the will and the grind to hold serve in the D zone when he's in the right situation. But I don't know. I, I, I think your points are fair. It's just, I happen to disagree with a couple of them. Yeah. I, you know, and it's fine to disagree because, you know, like you said, he's, he's 23 years old. This is not me slamming the door shut on him, but this is me almost, you know, for those of you more statistically inclined, taking almost like a Bayesian approach here, where as I continue to get more and more information and that information looks bad, I have to kind of update what I think about him. And you and, use you know, more recent information more prominently, right? Right, right. Yeah. So now I'm going to wait more recent information, you know, uh, or kind of slant my take towards that. And so if I'm looking at Philip Ronick's last 50 games, they're not pretty at all. Now, yes, this is on an awful team uh, without a lot of talent, and he's being asked to do a lot. But, you know, I, I, I pull back to the comparison of Thomas Shabbat. Thomas Shabbat's stuff looks much better. His numbers look outstanding. And he's leading Ottawa in minutes. In fact, he's the only guy that looks good on Ottawa on the defensive side of the puck. And so, you know, he was the comp that I threw out that if you're you're worried about Philip Ronick, you know, Shabbat's a kind of a guy like that. Now, yes, Shabbat is a more talented player than Philip Ronick, but Shabbat's not just treading water. He is doing quite well. And, and right now, you know, the, the scary part is it doesn't look like Philip Ronick is treading water analytically. He is, you know, his his car, his early metrics are looking quite poor. So that's where I'm going to just say that I have some concern about what he's going to be. And that's why with this upcoming draft, you know, handedness should not factor in which of these defensemen you're taking. If you're taking a defenseman in, in, in the with your first pick. You know, there are a handful of really good defensemen, you know, that we've talked about. You know, you mentioned Owen Power. There's Brant Clark. There's Carson Lambeau, Simon Edvinson, Luke Hughes. You know, handedness should not be a factor when you're picking because I I don't think you can be as confident that your right side really is solidified. I think that's fair. And I also think Heronik's a guy who I would be open to playing on the left side because that's his one-timer side. And if we're saying that's one of his two or three best attributes... Uh, not the worst thing to let him creep down in the slot uh, on his one-timer side. But I know that's not the basis of your point. I think uh, it's just a, uh, an opinion that holds true for multiple reasons. That's fair. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, let's go to the mailbag uh, and some really good questions in today's mailbag. So thank you guys uh, for those. Um, Brandon Gunn asks, Is this Red Wings team the one that played Carolina, Columbus, and Dallas somewhat close at times? which I would say was most of the time against those teams. Carolina, maybe a little different story, but they were tight games. Um, or the one that got dominated in a two-game series against Chicago. Prashanth, what do you think? Man, that's tough. You know, that's that's uh, that's the million-dollar question right now, right? Um, I think for me, I, I think this is the team that has been able to play those other teams close. Um, and the reason I say that is if, you know, you go back to the numbers I kind of quoted at the top of the show, you know, the wings, while they've had five of their games have been, uh, have not recorded more than 1.25 expected goals for, uh, at five on five, they've also been able to hold their opponents, um, to such a low total and for such games. And so to me, it's almost seems like the wings are able to exert their system or they're almost able to influence the other team with their system. And so to me, that shows at least some capacity to, to alter the way other teams play and that if the Wings can give that consistent effort, these hockey games are going to be close. They're not going to win many of them because, again, you need talent plus the breaks and then you need the talent to capitalize on the breaks. But I think you will see this team be continue to remain closer um, you know, and, and potentially land with more of those games as opposed to the 6-2 Chicago game. I think I agree with that. I, I think that the so far what the evidence has shown is the Red Wings able to execute their basic game plan. And again, it's not one that is all that fun to watch. As I texted uh, Ryan Hanna the other day, uh, this is what peak performance up for the Red Wings looks like. <laughs> you may not like it, uh, but it's peak performance or whatever. I, I, the ideal male body meme. I, I, I just massacred it, and I'm going to get shredded for that. I know it. <laughs> Nevertheless, that's kind of what it is. Like This is what the ideal 
uh, Red Wings game looks like. You almost certainly will not like it, but it's what they're it's what they're going for, and it, it, it's basically them at their best chance to win. Yeah, I mean that that is exactly it. The uh, this is peak performance, Max. Exactly, that's what it is. God damn it. <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> thanks for for showing me up on my own joke. Um, yeah, so I, I, I tend to agree with that. And I, I think that uh, the fact also that they have bounced back to three out of their four losses so far is not irrelevant. You know, in three of those games, they either won or sent the game to overtime following a loss. That's a good sign in a department that we talked about earlier in the year, which is not letting things spiral. Now, they didn't break the losing streak last night, um, you know, minus for that. But um, the fact that they responded and basically had the complete polar opposite performance on Tuesday to the one that they, was a disaster on Sunday, um, I think is relevant. Uh, moving on to the next question. This one is from Hurricane Dog. Uh, I recently saw the Red Wings have the second oldest roster in the league. That was in James Myrtle's story on The Athletic today. That strikes me as odd in a rebuild. What would be considered normal for a team five or so years into a dedicated rebuild? Is this a sign that the rebuild is way off track? Uh, I don't personally think so. You know, Max, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I I did not see James's story today, but James does this every year. Um, I don't believe he waits the age by time on ice. So I think he just averages the age of every player on the roster. Um, And so in Detroit's situation... You know, those older guys like Nielsen, aside from, you know, the game against Dallas, don't play the same minutes as Larkin, right? So normally, uh, to, to really get maybe the best assessment, you want a, a weighted average by age uh, and weighted average being time on ice um, times the age there. So, you know, I think Detroit probably looks a little better that way when you factor in that they're, you know, the guys playing the most minutes typically are 25 and younger. Um, but yes, they still do have veterans. And no, that doesn't mean the rebuild's off track uh, because the key here is you have to note that all those veterans are not on long-term contracts. They're here to plug holes um, for, for a year or two. And it how you choose to plug in those gaps in your roster is different amongst teams. You can use your entry-level contracts to do that. Uh, that tends to be my preferred strategy. You can use random unrestricted free agents. You can use veterans in the 35 and overs. Uh, you know, you can use a lot of different methods to get there, and they're all going to change what your average age looks like. Um, but at the end of the day, those are guys that are not technically playing a ton of minutes, save for the Dallas game. Uh, so I don't think it indicates anything about where the rebuild's at. I agree. And I think one confounding factor there is this is a team that should have had more cider on it. He's 19. That obviously is one data point that would have helped that number for the Red Wings. But I agree that the, mostly the the situation there is if this was the oldest roster in the league and the cap hits on on the books through 2022, we're expecting it to stay that way, maybe a little more of a problem, or 2023 even. Um, but a lot of those uh, players who are on the older side of this are off the books next year. Now, I do expect they'll be replaced with other veterans in, in most cases in free agency, but you're hoping that that's more of the 28, 29, 30-year-old veterans than the 33, 34, 35-year-old veterans, Bobby Ryan notwithstanding. Um, the only thing I will say that is a negative that influences this number is somebody like Denis Chalowski or Evgeny Svechnikov not being in that picture. I think that is a, a rebuild relevant thing. And so if you had Evgeny Svechnikov in there, 
instead of Franz Nielsen. If you had had Dennis Chalowski beat out, I don't know, say Mark Stahl, these are things that would swing the age uh, average down a, a fair amount. Um, and those are your former first round picks. So the fact that you had two former first round picks not make it that far out um, is a little more problematic. Chalowski, it's kind of getting to crunch time here. And the defense hasn't been banged up in the same way that uh, the forward group has, where like someone like uh, Rasmussen, Hiroshi, Smith are all in. Those are now younger players. I don't think that would have been factored into James's um, uh, numbers there. And so those might have even made it look a little bit different, uh, funny enough, to, to the team that was on the ice last night, um, to to the ones that he had down. But um, Svechnikov, that's not a good sign that he's not in there. And Chalowski, that's not a good sign that he's not in there. If you swap those two out for veterans, maybe that is more what the spirit of the question is. I don't think that tells you anything about where the rebuild is going, but I do think the fact that those two haven't hit as prospects, um, that delays it. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good way to, to frame it is, well, the fact that none of your draft picks hit such that you needed to go Not plug none. in. Well, you know, yeah, let's, a couple let's, years stretch right. there. I mean, you, you've had a handful that have not landed whatsoever. Yeah. High ones. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the challenge is, and, and maybe that's a good way to, to look at it. However, I still don't think that necessarily means the wings rebuilds in a bad spot, but it certainly could be in a far more optimal spot. Had you hit on, you know, some of those picks. All right. So uh logical next question from that is from Joe D one thirteen. Will the Red Wings become the next Buffalo? Will this rebuild take longer than expected? And curious what you guys are thinking about this seven games in. Yeah. Well, you know, Buffalo, for all their tanking, was rewarded with Jack Eichel, right? So they went out, they got Jack Eichel, they did great things. However, they continued to miss in the draft, which was a problem, and they made one uh, astronomical mistake in their rebuild that really has set this team back. If you look at that 2015-2016 Sabres roster, they weren't very good, but they were roughly, you know, they were substantially better than the year prior. I'll say that. So in 14-15, they were at 54 points. They had a 23-51-8 record. Uh, The following season in 15-16, they're at 35-36-11. and They're making strides forward. But what do they do? They trade Ryan O'Reilly. And the Ryan O'Reilly trade is why Buffalo is where they are right now. They gave up Ryan O'Reilly for pennies and ended up completely botching everything that they had. Um, you know, if you were able to keep Ryan O'Reilly there, you have Jack Eichel develop with them. Dylan you know, Cousins. You have Sam, right. You have Dylan Cousins. You have Sam Reinhardt. Uh, you know, now you're all of a sudden talking about a You don't very, pay Jeff Skinner. <laughs> right. You don't pay Jeff Skinner. They made a lot of mistakes that you're hoping Detroit doesn't make right now. Um, You're hoping Detroit doesn't go out and try and drop a big money contract uh, on somebody. You're hoping they don't go out and make a big trade for a guy like Jeff Skinner, who, you know, is not a guy that's going to swing the needle. You're hoping they don't, you know, try and trade a Dylan Larkin and then lose on that deal substantially. Um, And you're hoping that they continue to draft well. But, you know, it was... That Ryan O'Reilly trade, giving money to Jeff Skinner, taking Alex Nylander, you know, not getting what they thought in Rasmus Ristolainen. Uh, you know, you look, all of that really adds up, coupled with the fact that 
they never really found a goaltender. And so I think Detroit is on the path to avoiding it. But what you may see is more of what you saw in Carolina for the better part of the last decade, where Carolina is kind of did what Detroit is doing now, but Carolina never got the lottery luck. They kind of, and so it resulted in them missing the playoffs for a decade. And that stunk for a lot of the Hurricanes fans that I know. But all of a sudden, it just took one time for them to hit the lottery luck with Svechnikov. And then instantly they made a lot of changes because the roster was primed to make those changes. They go out, they get Dougie Hamilton, you know, they go out, they get Calvin DeHaan, and, you know, you, you, they hit on their draft picks with Sebastian Ajo. They acquired cheap assets in Tavo Teravainen, and all of a sudden that team's in the conference finals. So I think Detroit just has to bide their time, position themselves well, and don't get antsy like Buffalo and Edmonton. I think they could be Buffalo, but I don't think they're destined to be Buffalo. And I think what you said is exactly right. And I've said this before, which is that when people talk about Steve Eisenman being a great GM, what I hope people don't take out of that is that Steve Eisenman is going to come in here and hit three home runs and save the franchise in three years. Because what I mean by a good GM is a a good GM who makes smart moves at the margins. When he's forced into situations, he doesn't get hammered over them. And that would be a situation like the Jonathan Drouin one in Tampa, where you turn that kind of a problem into Mikhail Sergachev, which is a win. You make smart moves at the margins, smart moves with your back up against the wall, and you don't colossally fuck up. And I think trading Ryan O'Reilly is one of those things where you're just like, oh, no. That wasn't it. And if Ryan O'Reilly didn't want to stay in Buffalo, ultimately, I don't remember the saga there for why he had to come out or, or why he had to be moved or what was it a bonus due or something like that? Yeah. So these are situations that it, it's not in an abstract and I'm not trying to hammer um, Jason Botterill there. Um, I, I didn't like the Jeff Skinner deal and that isn't looking great. But that also, I think, is a product of the situation they were in where you keep having all these situations where it, you're not you're spinning your wheels. You, you you can't move, and then finally someone comes in and and you, and nets you forty goals. And what are you going to do? You're going to let them walk? That's a terrible message to send to, to guys. And so that's just one of those really bad situations that you end up losing twice on in a way. Uh, so it because you didn't win that season, and then you pay, and then it, it doesn't go that well for them. So. This is what I think is is impressive about Steve Eiserman and, and will be impressive. It's not that I think he's going to hit every home any every draft pick as a home run because he didn't have all that many home runs as as early round draft picks in Tampa. Obviously, did well in the later rounds, but you have to attribute some of that to Al Murray and, and the scouting department there. But what I what I, what impresses me about Eiserman is more of in the mold of the Robbie Fabry trade, where you turn nothing into something. No disrespect to Jacob DeLaRose, but he wasn't going to be a long term piece of the Red Wings. You turn into Robbie Fabry, and we don't know if he will be, but he's going to help him bridge the gap, if nothing else. And so that's the best way the Red Wings can avoid becoming Buffalo. It's not because you can guarantee Iserman can will them into Jack Eichel or Rasmus Dahlin. He can't. They probably will get will will not get players of that caliber. Um, but what I think he can do is succeed at the margins and not make that big mistake or two big mistakes that compound the misery. And so. I don't think they're out of the woods from being Buffalo. I think they're the best reason to think that they won't be Buffalo is not. And I also, I should say this, 
I think Buffalo is still going to get out of this. I think they're going to be okay. I think they're going to be a playoff team in the next couple of years. I think they're going to succeed. Um, I really like a couple of their prospects. I don't know that I was wild about the Jack Quinn pick this year, but I do really like Dylan Cousins now. I was not high on him at the time of the draft, and I should have been. Um, but with, with with Eichel, with him, with Reinhardt, with Darlene, if Taylor Hall stays, you never know. I think they're going to they're gonna make it. It's just going to take them longer than it should. And so the big thing for the Red Wings is don't, don't let it take too much longer than it needs to um, by shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, that's exactly it. All right. I think that's all we got for today. Uh, we ran a little long, so we appreciate you uh, sticking with us through that. But uh, we will uh, we'll talk to you next time. The Red Wings play Thursday night at Dallas, and they got a weekend series against Florida. Uh, so we will talk to you uh, after those, and uh, we'll look forward to it. Take care. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.